The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org forward slash university. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 47th and 16th in Seattle's U District. You know, it's a real privilege for me to be a part of the Inn. I uh, was down in Los Angeles for a number of years and... uh, uh, Coming up here, trying to get uh, away from some of the football culture down there and uh, finally be where we've got winning teams up here. Um, Looking forward. Hey, um, Sarkeesian called me and said, we need some pastoral leadership up here, uh, building a team. Will you come up? Uh, Actually, I I wrote him a letter when he came up because I thought, you know, there are a lot of things that we have in common. We're both coming up from Los Angeles. Both of us were sort of associates. I was associate pastor in L.A. He was like associate uh, coach. And I, so I thought, hey, we could be buddies, right? We come up. And then I read the second day he came up here what his salary was. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to get a reply to my letter, which I didn't. Um, but, yeah, that hurt. Hey, pastors have feelings too. Um, I just want to say how, uh, how much people uh, appreciate your ministry the inn. You know, from a distance in Boston, believe it or not, from a distance in Los Angeles, there's great respect for your community and what God has done over the years and really what God is doing here. And it's really about relationship. It's about friendship with one another. And, uh, and it's about what Jesus Christ does when we are concerned for one another and uh, witness to him and take an interest in one another. So you're doing that. And it's a for me to be a part of that. And I also want to say thank you to those of you who are helping us build a new worship service at University Presbyterian Church at 7 p.m. on Sunday. Uh, we're really excited about it and excited, most of all, about your involvement in that. So I want to thank you. But I understand Ryan Church asked me to come and share a few words from the book of Jonah tonight in the midst of a series that you're doing on Doubters Anonymous. So I guess I want to start by saying, hi, my name is George. Okay. Thank you. Um, And I want to begin with the idea of of a question. You know, the book of Jonah ends with a question. And it actually ends with a question that God asks the prophet. And it's the second time that he has asked the same question by the time we get to the end of the book. And you know what it's like when somebody asks you a question twice? The same question? Kind of makes you wonder, wait, did I, did I say something wrong the first time? And I'm thinking of like, remember Slumdog Millionaire? At the end of the movie, and uh, I think it's like the penultimate question, right? Second to last question where this, it's about um, a cricket player. I don't even remember the exact question, right? The guy has written on the mirror what uh, the host, what he uh, tries to trick, you know, Jamal Malik into answering the question, right? And he's then back in the, uh, in the, uh, in the audience of setting their filming, and he asks, you know, the question. And uh, Jamal answer, asks, answers, I don't know, was it C or whatever, you know, and he asks, so are you sure your answer is C, you know, or is that your final answer or whatever? It, you know, it makes you think, well, wait a second. Does he, is he trying to help me or does he know something? Same way when, um, when God asked Jonah the same question twice, it kind of makes you go, wait a second. I wonder if I got the answer right the first time. It makes you question uh, your answer. When you move in freshman year and your uh, roommate who's been in the room for, you know, a few hours before you get there asks you, which bed would you like? And you go, I'll take that one. He goes, you're sure you want that one? You know, all of a sudden you're wondering, what, did someone spit on that? Or, you know, is there something wrong with that mattress? Uh, it, so when God asks Jonah 
the same question twice, what it does is it causes Jonah to doubt his doubt. That's what I want to talk about tonight. You know, all of us have doubts. But not all of us have the capacity to doubt our doubts, to ask questions about the questions we ask about God. And that's what God was encouraging Jonah to do. So what I'd like to do is I want to give you a quick kind of run through the story of Jonah. There are four chapters in the book, and the two questions come at the end in the fourth chapter. So I want to just give you a little bit of background by way of starting. And then I want to look at these two questions with you and see how Jonah is reacting to the double asking of the same question. So first, let's begin with Jonah 1, 1 through 3. And we have some of the text on the slide. It's the beginning of the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying... Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The three things you have to know right off the bat, and the first thing is this, prophets are not people who tell the future. That's not the primary focus of a prophet. That's what, always what I thought a prophet was. But that's really not what defines a prophet. A prophet is someone who calls God's people to covenant faithfulness. Another way of saying that same thing is that a prophet is somebody that calls us to take the long view on life. The long view. Think of marriage. Anybody I know who is married has doubts about their relationship. And it's important for you to remember that. And oftentimes people are not honest about that. Doubts like, did I marry the right person? Was I old enough and mature enough when I entered in this relationship? Uh, is she faithful to me or is he faithful to me? The doubt is just a part of the relationship. And marriage is a covenant. Just like our relationship with God is a covenant. Or the, mar- the relationship between the Israelites and God is a covenant. When a prophet comes along, he says, step back from this conflict right here. Step back from this crisis that you're in. Step back from the thing, the doubt that you're facing, and take the long view. Remember, in the case of a marriage, who this person is and how you got involved in the first place. Remember the times that you've had together that signify the importance of your relationship to you. In the same way, that's what a prophet does for Israel. comes and says, remember the great covenant that God made with us. Remember the deliverance from Egypt. Remember how faithful he's been all the way along. Right? So that's what a prophet is, is called to do. So Jonah is a prophet. We don't really know that much about him. We find him in the 8th century in Israel, of course. And uh, he's calling, he's called to call uh, people to the long view. Second thing we need to know is that the Ninevites, going to Nineveh, that great city, uh, were not in the covenant. Okay, Ninevite is a whole nother nation. It's not even next to Israel. God had made no promise to Nineveh. And in fact, the Ninevites were famous for being really nasty people. They were great warriors. They were brutal warriors. And so there's another prophet named Nahum. You get a sense for the Ninevites through this prophet. Nahum spoke against Nineveh. Here's what the Lord says through Nahum. This is Nahum chapter 3. Ah, city of bloodshed. Nineveh, utterly deceitful, full of booty, no end to the plunder, the crack of whip. Okay, they're not, okay, I'm not going to comment. 
Someone over here got me started. Okay. Stuff that pirates steal is called booty. It's an old translation. Dang. Where were we? Okay. The crack of the whip and rumble of wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. These are the tanks of the ancient world. Chariots, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, piles of dead, heaps of corpuses. Gosh, it was like your little skit there. Dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Because of the callous debaucheries of the prostitute, gracefully alluring, mistress of sorcery, who enslaves the nations through her debaucheries and peoples through their sorcery. This is a verse you don't find on the Hallmark card. These people are nasty people, and the Israelites love to talk about it. They love to uh, thumb their noses at the Ninevites uh, just before the Ninevites killed them. And in fact, in, in uh, 722, it's about 40 years after uh, this whole scene with Jonah, 722... Uh, the Ninevites will come down and sweep through Israel and, and crush them. So these are not pretty people. So that's the second thing you need to know. So first of all, prophet calls to the long view. Second of all, Nineveh is a tough town. And the third thing is that Tarshish is not even near Nineveh. Uh, remember the text says that Jonah uh, was told to go to Nineveh, but he said, I don't think so. Goes down to Joppa, gets in a boat, and goes to Tarshish. I don't know if you can read any of that, but on the right side of the screen, we have Israel. You know where that is. Nineveh is the upper right-hand corner. It's um, in Baghdad. Thank you very much. Look at that. Ticker bell. And then, but way over to the left, <laughs> Spain is where we think that Tarshish was. So he goes, hmm, I don't think so. I'm going to get on a boat and go absolutely as far away from where God wants me to go as possible. And this is what doubt can do in our lives. It can do this. Doubt is this kind of thing that uh, just check out of the relationship with God entirely. Not just physically, but spiritually. It says Jonah wanted to get away from the presence of the Lord. He is on the lamb. Okay, you know the story. Next, um, there's a big fish. It's not a, wh- a whale, as we say. But the text calls it a great fish. And it comes and um, swallows Jonah up. He, he's on the boat. There's a storm. There's a great wind, a great storm. And all the pagan sailors... Uh, on the ship, say, well, who, whose God is doing this? They draw lots, points to Jonah. He's asleep below the deck, and uh, the pagan uh, comes down there and says, what in the world are you doing sleeping below the deck? We're about to die. And Jonah goes, I know why you're about to die. It's me. He's got m- very little concern for these sailors because, of course, they're pagans, and he's an Israelite. He says, I worship the God who made the earth and the sea. Of course, this makes uh, uh, all these sailors very nervous, and they, they, they grill him. Tell us about what, what's going on in your life. And, and uh, Jonah says, just throw me overboard. And they go, oh, no, 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 we don't want to do that. But eventually they are uh, talked into it. They throw Jonah overboard, and there's this great uh, fish. Now, I don't know what you think about this story, the great fish. Have you made up your mind yet about that? I mean, does this really happen? As a little girl, she's uh, flying on an airplane alone, and uh, her mother said, you know, if you get nervous, pull out your Bible, read the Bible. And she's reading it. She's uh, traveling next to this kind of sophisticated and, and slightly snide agnostic uh, businessman who turns over. She goes, he goes you, know, you, you don't really believe the stuff that's written in that book, do you? And she says, yeah, it's the Bible. It's God's word. I think it's true. He says, oh, come on. There's all kinds of crazy stuff in there like Jonah and the whale. You don't really believe that someone stayed alive in a whale for three days, do you? She said, I don't know. I I suppose, uh, but uh, when I get to heaven, I can ask him how that happened. And he goes, wow, what if you get to heaven and he's not there? She goes, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) 
It's way past my bedtime. When we asked the question, by the way, when we asked the question about the great fish, and could that have happened, I think that we're asking the wrong question. I don't think the writer of the book of Jonah uh, really is concerned about how we view that. The book is so much about if you have a great God, don't be surprised when he does great things. I'll say more about that uh, later on. So he uh, gets swallowed up in this fish. Chapter 2 is a Thanksgiving psalm that he, he sings. He's praying in the midst of the, of the fish. He gets um, really vomited onto the beach. He's regurgitated there, and we have a reset. Let's see if we have uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I just gave you the first three chapters of Jonah. And now, um, um, actually, no, not that one yet, sorry. Um, chapter 3. I'll read it to you because I'm not sure if we have... uh, There we go. Okay, the word of the Lord... So he's just been spewed up onto the beach. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Now that's exactly what the Lord had said to them for the first time. So we have a repetition. This is part of the theme of the book of Jonah. Reset. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Oh, so now he's going to obey. Um... There's, you know, God is really committed to Jonah in this task and uh, wants Jonah to be the guy to bring this message uh, to the Ninevites. So, um, now, the question that Jonah is asked. The first time he's asked the question, now let's look at this, uh, Jonah uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Um, Jonah goes to Nineveh. He walks through the city and he proclaims judgment is coming. And there's this repentance. Now, this is a pagan city. And they take on ash cloth and sashes, uh, ashes. And they, and they fall to their knees. And they have a, a great fast. And um, the, the unthinkable happens. This is far more miraculous than a great fish. This entire pagan city uh, repenting. Now, there are, we find in the 8th century, some indications of why this could have happened. These are very uh, superstitious people, and we have several things. There are uh, military and diplomatic setbacks in the the 8th century at this time for Nineveh. There is a famine, which would have been politically destabilizing for this king. There uh, was an earthquake, and there was uh, uh, an eclipse. So perhaps in a convergence of all these things that destabilized society so that they were ready for anything, and here comes this prophet slightly smelling of fish, and, um, and they, they, they repent. This is what really bothers Jonah, and here's where we get to the question and his doubt. But this repentance was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning. For I knew that you are a gracious God. It's an interesting complaint, isn't it? And merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And here's how the Lord responds. The Lord said, Is it right... For you to be angry. Is it right for you to be angry? God is the one who raises the question of doubt for Jonah. It's interesting. Oftentimes we're the ones 
who identify our doubts to God. But God is the one who puts his finger. Is it right for you to feel angry about this? I know you're angry. Let's think about this, Jonah. Doubt is something that's elusive. We had this healing service on Sunday. And um, people were coming forward. It's a beautiful thing to see as people were coming forward honest about their need for healing. And uh, our elders and leaders were there anointing people with oil and praying for them. Um, and this one guy was coming forward, and I knew him. And he shared some prayer requests with me, and I was going to pray for him, but I could not remember his name. I'm thinking, this is David. I know it. But I've never used this guy's name before because I haven't had that many interactions with him. And so I, I didn't want to risk it. It was, I was really wrestling with doubt. It's David, isn't it? No, it's, it can't be David. It couldn't be David. That's just what you think it would be. Therefore, it couldn't be David. And so I said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to tell me your name. And, and I, I'm really embarrassed. He said, it's David. And I thought, oh, gosh. So, you know, it, oftentimes with our doubts, we're not even able to know if we really doubt. So God says to Jonah, look, Jonah, you're angry. Is it right for you to be angry? He surfaces uh, Jonah's doubt for him. Now, here's the nature of Jonah's doubt. He's quoting from Exodus, Exodus 34. And this phrase, right in the middle of that paragraph, slow to anger, is a translation of a Hebrew word. And I want to give you uh, two facial features in this text uh, that are important, kind of hidden behind the English translation. Slow to anger means long in the nostril. Okay, that's kind of weird. Let me unpack that for you. Um, in, the, in the ancient world, um, you, you could speak of someone's anger by their nose heating up. And I, we don't really know exactly why that is. Maybe when you're angry, you know, your whole face kind of screws up. You get flushed in the face. And so that became a way of talking about anger. Your nose gets red, hot. Uh, to be slow of anger is to have a long nostril. And we don't really know why either, but the, the thought is that, you know how um, if you get angry, someone says, well, count to ten, and that, you know, I, and the, the idea may be that, you know, when God gets angry, he goes, and you draw in this big breath of air, and it just takes him a long time. He's like, his nostrils are so long, he's sucking in all this air, and it's like he's, by the time his lungs are full, he's like, I feel better now. You know, it's like, you're just too slow. You know, you can't get the anger engine cranked fast enough. That's the kind of complaint that he's got. Now, in Exodus 34, this is exactly the assertion that the Lord uh, makes about himself. And here's the setting back in Exodus. You, you, you may know this story. Moses is up on uh, Mount Sinai. He's receiving the Ten Commandments, which are the covenant documents. That, that's what the, that, those are the documents that define the covenant between God and Israel. While Moses is up there, the holiest moment of the nation of Israel, receiving these covenants, essentially marrying God and the Israelites, what's happening at the foot of the mountain? They're making a golden calf and they're, they're worshiping false idols. They're committing adultery right at the base of the mountain. It's kind of an orgy on the wedding night. And God, and God is angry because he's a jealous God. And Moses goes, uh-oh, this is not going to be good at all. Uh, but that's when God says, he relents, he has compassion. He says, I am abounding in mercy, I am slow to anger. Now Jonah, as a prophet, he knows this story. And he says, I know if you send me to Nineveh, you're going to do the anger thing again. It's going to come, and then it's going to go. And you're going to have mercy on the Ninevites. You can't do that. I don't want to live in a world 
where good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. I don't want to live in a world where God, who's supposed to exact justice and judgment and punishment on the bad guys, will show them mercy. See, that's the crisis for Jonah. It just doesn't compute. It's just too dangerous a reality for him. That's his doubt. God's nose is too long. Okay, so, uh, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah. That's the first time he asked. Now, he asked that question again. Let's look here now at the next. I'm going to read for you the, the rest of the uh, chapter, which is right to the end of the book. And you're going to see that, that question getting asked a second time. So here's the verse, the first asking, just repeating verse 4. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Now, here's how Jonah reacts. Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade waiting to see what become, would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. <laughs> but when dawn came... This is very earthy. Actually, uh, well, I don't have time. Uh, when, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, here's our question, is it right for you to be angry, but now in addition, about the bush? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. Isn't it funny how irrational? You've got, to watch, you've got to doubt your doubts. Ask questions about them. This doesn't sound right to us, but to Jonah, it was making perfect sense. Yes, angry enough to die. It's like he's a landscape architect. He's so committed. You know. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And Jonah, should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And that is the end of the book. It's an interesting way uh, that the book ends. So, what's happening here? Jonah, um, he's angry at God because he knows he's going to do the long nostril thing, but just in case he doesn't, he doesn't want to miss the fireworks. So he uh, goes across this valley, I guess, to a little hill opposing Nineveh. And he sits there and he just want to wait there because there was a time limit on this, uh, this repentance thing to see if it explodes. Because if Nineveh blows up, it's just going to be a great thing to see, you know, for a prophet of Israel to be able to be there. So he's just not going to give up the opportunity to actually see it happen just in case it happens. And so but the problem is it's hot in the desert there. I uh, see this in Iraq um, and... Uh, and it's going to get warm. It does. And so he builds this little booth for himself, probably out of stone or clay. Um, there's no wood around there, so it's got no roof on it. Just a little lean-to. And when the sun is high, of course, it's baking his bald little prophetic head. <laughs> so God makes a bush grow up, some kind of leafy thing, grows up and provides some shade. And, and it says then he rejoices. He's happy. But then the next day, God appoints a worm to go eat the bush and... Takes it away, and now we get anger. He's angry again. Now, why does God do this? Why this little exercise in experiential learning? Uh, um, Two reasons. First of all, 
Um, God wants Jonah to see that what drives his emotional life is what's good or bad for Jonah. Jonah has put himself in the center of everything. The word bad occurs nine times in the book of Jonah. Evil is translated different ways. But here at the at 4.1, Jonah says, This was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. In the Hebrew, literally, it says, It was an evil, a very great evil to Jonah. You see, if it's good for Jonah, it's good. If it's bad for Jonah, it's bad. Let's be honest. Anger can be very satisfying. Do you agree with me? Have you ever? It can be intoxicating. Anger. I remember a time I was driving my car, um, Boston Common. Any of you been to Boston? It's uh, Boston Common is this kind of two big city blocks that are back to back. They're weird shaped. They're not exactly square, and so you have to go around them in a certain way. And I was going. Um, uh, to an important meeting, I was late, I was with my wife, we were driving as quickly as possible, and there were these two limos, how limos, they were stretched limos with the dark glass and everything, and there's just sort of an arrogance that goes on there, right from the very beginning, who needs to drive in a limo like that? So, first of all, I was on a mission. Uh, but then what the limos were doing is they were trying, obviously trying to stay together, and they were trying to make the sequence of turns that you have to make to get through Boston Common without being separated. And so to do that, they had to edge all these cars out, and I thought, not me. <laughs> so I got my little Subaru, you know, and I'm speeding up, and I realize if I, they have to swing wide to make one of these turns. So if I get really fast right up between them, then I can maybe separate them which I do. And my wife is going, what is happening to my husband? He's maniacal. And, I'm, and you know, it's important at these points not to make eye contact with anybody, not with your wife, not with the uh, people in, you know, behind the dark glass, you know, because we're, we're like four inches apart as I'm moving the car around. And, and I make, I separate them, and one of these uh, limos has to go shooting off this one-way road, and I will know it'll take about 15 minutes to get back around. So I just, yes, the little guy wins one. And so I pull up. Now, it happened I was going to church. And I said, it's a very large church, Park Street Church. I pull the car up right there at the curb, and I think, I am a little late for this meeting. And uh, so I've got to uh, let my wife out. So she gets out somewhat dismayed. And I'm going to go park the car and run back. Turns out this is a wedding. As we, she's getting out of the car, a large stretch limousine pulls up right behind and uh, the door opens, and it's the bride, one of my good friends. And I think, okay, um, that's not so satisfying. But anger can be, <clears throat> it can be very satisfying. When you make yourself the center of everything that's good and evil, when I make myself, do not be surprised when you feel emotionally bland at other people's suffering. Because if it's not bad for you, it's not really bad. If it's not good for you, it's not really good. When people rejoice, it's hard for you to get into it because it's not it's for you. So Jonah's got this problem. His emotions are out of sync with the heart of God because what's good or bad is only what's good or bad for Jonah. Jonah has uh, a hot nose. He lives a lifestyle of hot nose. And this is where his doubt comes out of his own personal life. The second thing uh, that God wants to teach Jonah in this little exercise of the bush is he wants to wake himself him up to the absurdity, and you already caught it, um, of putting a plant ahead of people, of valuing a bush in the desert more than a city of people. So he asks him this question, is it right for you to be angry about a bush? And Jonah's going, okay, wait, how do I answer this? If I say 
no, it's not right for me to angry, then I have to admit that I'm not the center of the moral, the moral center of the universe. Maybe there is a good or bad to other people without reference to me. If I say yes, I do have a right to be angry, then I'm saying that the lowest form of life in the creation order has value that I get angry at. And if, if the lowest form of life, a shrub, has value, then think about animals. Think about humans. I should be angry about them, too, when something uh, risks their safety. So he's in this kind of a box, which, God, I hate it. He always puts us in a box. There's no right answer other than, I think I see it your way. And God says here, um, he uses another facial image, uh, um, the eye. He says, should not I have looked with compassion on this city? That eye is associated with compassion because it was the place of grief, the place of tears. God has a long nostril, but he also has a perspective on you and a perspective on the world that allows him to see with compassion. Ultimately, it's really about the heart of God. So that God looks at the Ninevites just like Jesus looks on the multitudes when he sees them with compassion as sheep without a shepherd. He sees the heart. He sees the soul. He sees the eternal value in every single human life. And Jonah couldn't see that until God asked him to doubt his doubts. Let me close with this thought. When God does not seem the way you want him to seem, be very careful. Challenge your assumptions. Doubt your doubts. There's another word that repeats all the way through the book of Jonah, and it's the word great. A great city. A great wind. A great storm. A great fish. It comes again and again and again. Why? Because God wants Jonah and he wants us to know that there is a great God. So much bigger than our concept. Our little teeny concept of who God is and what he should be doing in the world. Wilbur Reese writes this uh, quote. He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a foreigner or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Isn't that what Jonah wanted? A God he could understand, a God he could tame, a God who would do what he wanted God to do. Well, the story ends with a question, and there are two reasons for that. The first is God wants you to take the long view. There is no answer, ultimately, to how God brings his anger and his mercy together until the cross of Jesus Christ. It's there that the hot nose and the compassionate eye are joined in the cross of Jesus Christ. The other reason why this uh, book ends with a question is the writer wants you to answer. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? That's the question that uh, we ask ourselves every time we come to this communion table. This is a table in which we see the body of God.
in Jesus Christ. Given for us, dismembered, bread and cup, body and blood. God crucified for the sins of the world. If you can understand that, you're so much smarter than I am. God is so bigger than we can ever imagine. His love is so much greater than we can ever even ask for. And we see it at this table. It was the Apostle Paul who remembered that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the, cup, after the supper, he took a cup and blessed it and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us because our minds are so small compared to yours. There's great mystery and wonder, and we invite that. We thank you that you're bigger than our questions, certainly bigger than our answers. So we, will, we want to fall down before you in awe and wonder. And we do that when we see Jesus Christ, who has come to offer the life of God for the lives of sinners. Set these elements aside, would you? That they become uh, literally for us signs and seals and means of grace. They present to us the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That we might be freed from our sin. That we might be fed for eternal life. That we might know that you go with us when we go from this place in a special way. You who have touched our bodies in this meal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.